take your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to continue our series, Church in the Wild, Faith in the Fray. And uh, I hope that you are enjoying and being encouraged by this series of messages as much as I have been in preparing these messages, listening to Brother Neil uh, preach. 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll begin in just a moment. Fifty years is a wonderful landmark uh, for a church to achieve, uh, and, uh, and so we should be very thankful, very blessed, and I, I know that you are, and uh, we will continue to be, and, uh, but we also know that uh, with 50 years uh, and marking that great milestone in our church's history, uh, it simply means that we need to continue on doing what we have done in the past, uh, moving forward for the cause of Christ, uh, that... Um, in these years ahead of us, we will continue to be used of God as we have been in the past uh, to see people saved uh, and that uh, God will continue to uh, build his church. And, uh, and with that, again, uh, I, I know it's the 4th of July weekend. I know tomorrow's the 4th, and so everybody's got a little bit longer weekend, and many of you are probably traveling. Uh, but boy, I just want to encourage you, come back to church. Come back to church. Last week demonstrated for us uh, how many people should be here each and every Sunday. You know, we read uh, an article uh, one time talking about church attendance in these modern days. Uh, and the writer of this article made a, uh, what I thought was a really good point. He said, it's not that there are less people going to church. Uh, it said that there are just, uh, that these people just don't go to church as much. It's not that less people are going to church. It's just that they go to church less. Uh, and let me just say, when you're not here, you miss out. Uh, and we miss out by not having you here. So again, those of you that are watching at home, I'm so thankful we can live stream our services. So thankful that you can sit there in the comfort of your living room with a cup of coffee uh, and watch, be a part. But it's not like being here. I just want you to know that. It's not like being here. Uh, so come back. Come back to church. So again, thankful for 50 years of Calvary Hill Baptist Church. I do want to mention, and I'm not going to talk about it much because it's already been talked about a lot, but uh, one anniversary that I'm glad will not celebrate its 50th anniversary, and that's the Roe v. Wade decision. Aren't you thankful this morning for what God has done? And I just would say this, in spite of this wonderful ruling uh, by the Supreme Court, uh, the struggle's not over. Um, all that this ruling has done is simply declared that, uh, that abortion on demand is no longer a constitutional right. Uh, now it'll be up to the states, which means that we Texans will have to go to the polls and decide uh, what's going to take place here. Uh, and we need to be in prayer for other states throughout our nation that uh, wise decisions will be made. But we can be thankful today that a, that a good decision was handed down, uh, and we should rejoice in that. All right, First Peter chapter 1. Beginning in verse 13, the words will be here on the screen if you don't have a Bible or a device that you can follow along. Uh, Peter simply writes, Therefore, <clears throat> preparing your hearts for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We've been singing about that all morning. Amen. Setting our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation, the return of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed 
to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, that like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Think about that. Christ came into this world for your sake, for my sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray and we'll, we'll look at these verses together this morning. Father, we are so thankful for the hope that we have in Jesus. As we've sung this morning and as Peter wrote earlier on in this, this chapter, it is a living hope that you have called us to, Father, uh, how we should rejoice in that, how we should seek to keep our eyes focused upon our hope, uh, Lord, and not on the things of this world. So, Lord, open our hearts and minds to all that you would say to us in these next few moments. Speak to us, challenge us, remind us of who you are and who we are in this world and just what it is that you have called us to do and how we are to do it. And, Lord, help us as we leave here today to simply rejoice in the salvation that is ours in Christ. Lord, we believe today. Because you chose to save us, to ransom us from the futile ways of our past, the sinful ways of our past. So, Lord, help us to go out into this world to be different. Lord, to live Christ-like lives, noticeable, peculiar. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Peter calls his people to hope. Now, I just want to say this to you. This is a theme throughout the Word of God. Um, the people of God have always been a people who have struggled to live out their faith. That's just the way that it is. I, I shared with you last week that struggle, suffering are what you and I have been called to. There is really no way that we can escape it. I mean, Paul says to Timothy that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And throughout the history of the church, God's people have struggled, they have, they have suffered, they have been persecuted, they have had to carry out the stewardship that God had entrusted to them under difficult circumstances. And let me tell you, it's not going to be any different for us. Now, we've been blessed, as we've already sung this morning, blessed to be born and to be living in a country like the United States of America, where for, for uh, uh, hundreds of years now, uh, freedom of religion has been indeed a right guaranteed to us by, by our Constitution. And Christianity has been such a, a mainstream belief that, uh, that we have been able to do what we do with relatively little interference from the government or from anybody else. Uh, but it doesn't have to be that way for always. Uh, no guarantees that it'll be that way, even here in the United States. As we've already been reminded, in Ethiopia, our brothers and sisters in Christ are struggling. Uh, 
uh, perhaps at the cost of their very lives. And of course, it's not only in Ethiopia. Throughout the world, we could name country after country uh, where our Christian brothers and sisters are not able to gather in the freedom that we've gathered in this morning. Uh, they have to gather secretly. They have to carry out their work secretly. Uh, or if they choose to do it publicly at great risk to themselves and to their families. And so we do need to remember them and to, to pray for them. Uh, they struggle. But Peter's encouragement to us and to our brothers and sisters around the world is simply this. As we struggle, as we suffer for the cause of Christ, uh, remember where your real hope is. It's not in human institutions, not in the government, not in the Constitution. Church, we need to remember that. Our hope is not in the United States of America. It's in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Peter calls us to hope. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. Of course, we've talked about hope so many times. Uh, hope is, in, in, in New Testament language, doesn't mean to wish or the, or the way that we often use that word, hope. Boy, I, I hope such and such happens, you know, with, with uh, you know, the thought that, well, it may and it may not. A, a New Testament hope is, 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 a, is a confident assurance. It's, a, it's an expectation of, of certainty. When we put our hope in Christ, let me tell you, the Word of God tells us and our experience tells us that He's never going to let us down. He's never going to fail us. Christ has promised to return, has He not? And since that day, since that promise that He made to His disciples in John chapter 14 and 15, Christians have been looking for, longing for, praying for the return of Christ. And so should we. Uh, and, and praying for and looking for it, knowing that it is a certainty. Christ will come again. The grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, the, the return of Jesus Christ, is an absolute certainty. And that's what we need to understand when we look at that word hope. And of course, this word, as I've already mentioned, it, it has a futuristic aspect to it. Certainly, we are strengthened by the grace of God for the work that he has given us today. Um, as I said last week, grace is the means by which God saved us. For by grace are you saved, through, through faith, and not of yourselves, not of any works. No, no man can boast that he's a, a Christian. We are, we are Christians by the grace of God. We needed God's grace in that day, didn't we? I said last week, I'm so thankful for the grace of God there was no way that I could have saved myself. And as a matter of fact, as I look back on those days, I had no desire to save myself. I thought I was fine. I thought I was on a good path. I thought that everything that I had planned for my life was, was, was good and that ultimately most of it would come to pass and everything would be all right. So thankful that God loved me in spite of me and that he gave me his grace, the grace that saved me. So thankful today for the grace of God that strengthens me to carry out this, this life of faith and hope and love. Um, but there's yet more grace to come. The grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's, it's that grace. It's that, that grace that Christ will bring when he returns. That's, that's where we place our hope. We know that that day's coming. And because that day's coming and because what that day represents to us, no matter what we have to deal with now, it'll be all right. We can do it. We can do it. So set your hope 
fully. Again, the idea here and what Peter is calling us to do, this, this call to hope is a call to put your hope in Christ and really to put it in nothing else. Everything else will let you down. Put your hope fully, completely, absolutely in the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus. If you want to live this life that's God, that God has called you to, if you want to endure these sufferings um, with, with faith and grace, it, it, it demands this. It demands that you, you understand what awaits us out there in the future. Yes, I'm so thankful that God chose to save me at a point in my past. Uh, so thankful that God is at work in my life today. But as I shared last week, the best day, the greatest day is still out there. The day of Christ's revelation, the day of Christ's return. So set your hope, your confident assurance, your expectation fully on the grace that he will bring to us when he comes back. And how, how do we do this? Really, the, the, the scriptures begin with telling us how to do this. Peter says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. These are, these are ways of describing how we set our hope on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus. Preparing your minds for action. If we translated that literally, it's something that we've all read in our King James Version of the Bible. Gird up the loins of your mind is what those words actually say. And it's a picture of preparing for action, preparing for strenuous, hard work, for, for a disciplined effort. You know, I, I think many times that as Christians, we just don't think that any of that applies to us. We tend to think that the Christian life's just supposed to be easy sailing. I've trusted Christ. I'm forgiven of my sin. You know what? I can sit back and relax and wait for Jesus to come back. That's not the way it works, church. That's not the way the Bible says that it's supposed to work. We're to prepare our minds for action. If we want to truly put our hope fully in the grace that will be brought to us at the return of Christ, we've got to prepare our minds. This speaks of mental effort, discipline. In order to think rightly, not, not just about the things that are going on today, but, but certainly that, but to think rightly about anything. We have to train or exercise our minds through the study of the scriptures. I'm reading a book right now that talks about uh, the doctrine of the word of God and the, the preciousness of God's word. Uh, the, the treasure that God's word is, or at least should be to us. When, when we think of the word of God in terms of that the Bible lays out for us, uh, I mean, there should be nothing more precious in our possession than this Bible, right? Nothing more precious. There should be nothing more essential to living the life that God has called us to than God's Word. We, as a people, in order to put our hope fully in God's grace, have to prepare our minds. We have to know God's Word. You know, there are so many issues that come before us uh, as a people. How do we know what to think about these things? How do we know whether the Supreme Court decision was good or not? Well, it's because God's word has a thing or two to say about the sanctity of life. How do we know how to decide, how to, how to plan, how to move forward in this life, how to make decisions that affect our family, our community, our church? How do we know that? Well, we know that by conditioning our minds 
you know, we have become a nation that has gone crazy about physical conditioning. I, I, I can't even quote the numbers anymore, but it's in the billions of dollars every year that, that, that people spend seeking to condition their bodies to somehow slow down the aging process. It's not going to happen. And I'm not saying that physical conditioning is a bad thing. I think we ought to keep ourselves as healthy as we can so that we can live the best life that we can, that we can serve the Lord with the most strength and energy that we can. But even more important than that is having a conditioned mind, thinking rightly, being strong mentally, being a person that others can depend on, to know how to understand an issue, how to answer rightly questions that come before us. In, in Romans 12, 2, Paul says that we are a people who are being transformed by the renewing of our mind. Does that describe you today? Is your life being transformed by the renewing of your mind? It should be. When Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, again, a verse of Scripture that perhaps many of us have memorized, it simply says this, 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God, that the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You want to be whole? You want to experience a wholeness in your life, this sense of well-being, this sense of understanding? You want to be equipped for every good work that God has called you to? Look to the Scriptures. Spend time in the Word of God. Condition your mind. And then, of course, a conditioned mind becomes a controlled mind. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. You know, we equate that word sober with, uh, well, with not being controlled by alcohol. And, and, and that's not a bad way to understand that word. But, but when we're talking about sober-mindedness, what does that mean? Well, Peter's talking about a spirit-controlled mind. Again, in much the same way Paul did in Ephesians 5.18 when he said, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Peter is saying that our minds ought to be controlled. They ought to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God. That's how we're to live our lives. God has given us his Spirit. The Spirit of God indwells us. And our minds should be controlled by that Spirit. Being sober-minded means remaining sensitive to the reality of God and the presence of God. You know, it's amazing to me, even in my own life, how often, if I'm not, not careful, I can, I can just go about living my life as if it, it's just up to me. But we need to live our lives with this constant awareness of the continual presence of God in our lives. God has promised to always be with us, to never leave us or forsake us. And we need to be aware of that each and every day. Again, when, you know, as much as I am thankful to be an American, America's got lots of problems. I mean, we're as divided a nation as perhaps we've ever been. And I've been talking about the fact that we're a divided nation for years now. We're a divided nation. We struggle. Many, in response to the Supreme Court decision, took to the streets in protest. 
I know that many people out there in my own country don't agree with the things that I agree with. They choose not to live their lives according to the same standard that I've chosen to live my life by. But you know what? For those of us that call ourselves Christians, we ought to be in agreement. Because we ought to be in agreement on what the Word of God says. Our minds should be sensitive every day to the reality and the indwelling presence of God in our lives. Again, Romans 2, that same verse that I, I, I mentioned being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Following that, it says that by testing, you may discern what the will of God is. Wouldn't it be wonderful to always know what the will of God is? Well, according to Paul, it comes by our transformed minds that are then tested. Tested through the experience of life, through the struggles of life, through the suffering of life. We are tested in order to discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Church, God has not left us in the dark. God has given us his word. He has called us to focus our full attention on our living hope, Jesus Christ and his return. We've been called to hope. Church, I know that there are a lot of things out there in the world that disappoint us. There are things right here in our church that disappoint us. In our own families that disappoint us, don't despair. Hope, hope in God. And, and, and be holy, that's the next thing. Verse 14 says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, <clears throat> you shall be holy, for I am holy. Let me tell you. As Christians, we are to lead holy lives. And let me just say this, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about what this means. One thing that it means is that we shouldn't live like everybody else out there in the world. We shouldn't conduct ourselves the way everybody else out there conducts themselves. I know it's easy for us to just kind of get caught in that cultural channel, uh, to, to just go with the flow. That's easy, right? But it's not what God's called us to. God's called us to, to holiness. And of course, he first speaks of his own holiness. We should be holy because the God who called us is holy. And when we're speaking of God's holiness, we're speaking of his, of his separateness, his separation from his own creation. Again, we can rejoice that God's promised to be with us. We have his presence. But let me tell you, God is, in one very profound sense, is, is separate from us. He is, he is other than we are. Uh, God is not like his creation. God is not like us. I, I know we like to think that. And, and let me just say this. It's okay for you to think that you're like God because you are, in a sense, you were created in the image of God. You are being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ right now if you have received him as Savior and Lord. So there is a real sense in which we can say that we are like God. But don't ever make the mistake of thinking that God's like you. He's not. God is holy. And he is holy beyond anything that I could even describe this morning with words he is, he is holy in a, in a sense completely other than any holiness that you or I can hope to attain in this world. If you read Psalm 50, the psalmist is speaking to God about the sin of the people of Israel. 
and that seemingly nothing is happening. No judgment is being delivered for the sins of the people. Somehow or for some reason, God has delayed his judgment. But God lets the people know real quick that it's coming. And he says to the people of, those of that day, and really to us, he says, you've, you've made a mistake. You thought that I was one like yourself. God is not one like ourselves. He is holy. Holy beyond, again, the ability to describe his holiness with words. So we're to be holy because God, the one who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, is holy. Now, what about us? When we speak of man's holiness, what are we talking about? If we can't be holy like God is holy, what kind of holiness can we achieve? What, how, how can we be holy? Well, again, the idea is still of, of separateness. God has separated us unto himself. Uh, I like to say it this way. God has set us aside for himself. Uh, when we think of being holy, that's what we ought to think about. When you read the word saint, that, that word saint simply means holy one. Uh, as children of God, we are saints of God. We are holy ones of God. And what that means is not that our lives are perfect. Oh, no, we're far from that. But what it means is, is that God has set us apart for himself, for his purposes. So really, as we pursue holiness, what we're pursuing is God's purpose in our lives. That's what holiness is all about, pursuing the purpose of God. And we can certainly do that. He has separated us from our sin, and we are so thankful for that. And he has set us aside for himself to, to serve. So again, holiness, what does it look like? Well, it looks like this. We've been set aside from our sin in order to serve our Heavenly Father. That's what we've been called to. Yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled to be forgiven. I'm thrilled to stand here and know that my sins have been taken away, that I've been separated from me, as according to the Psalms, as far as the east is from the west. But it doesn't stop there. I've been separated from my sin in order to serve my Savior and Lord. That's what it means to be holy. Really what it means is living in accordance with who you are in Christ. Did you know that even though Christians sin, when we sin, we, we sin against our own nature? We sin against the nature of God in us. So living a holy life, being holy, means living in accordance with who we are in Christ. And, and, and what does that mean? Well, it certainly means that I'm different from the man that I used to be. I shared my testimony last week. I was saved right here in this church when I was 24 years old. And the man that walked out of this church February 7th, 1982, was a different man than the one that walked in. My life has been different. It was different from the moment that God saved me. So we're different in that sense, different than the life that we used to live. And not only that, I found out that now my life is very different from most of the people in the world. I found that out immediately when I went home and told my family about my experience with Christ. I found out they weren't quite as excited about it as I was. My friends didn't like spending time with me as much as they did before that Sunday morning. And church, that's what all of us are called to. God has called us to himself. He has declared us righteous. We are no longer the person that we were before we came to know Christ. We are different from that, and we are different from those around us 
who don't know the Jesus that we have come to know. Paul, quoting the Old Testament scriptures, the prophet of Isaiah said this in 2 Corinthians 6, 17. He said, go out from their midst. Come away from them is another way that that verse is translated. And be separate. God has not called us to go along with the flow. We're countercultural beings commanded to be holy. It means, as I mentioned a moment ago, a life of being conformed to the image of Christ. Peter simply says it like this. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Boy, there's... We don't like to be... We don't like it to be implied about us that our former conduct sprang forth from ignorant passions, but that's the reality. We were ignorant of the things of God. Don't live your life like that. This is a warning that we should not give in to the temptation to return to old patterns of behavior when following Jesus becomes difficult. Following Jesus is difficult. It always has been. It always will be. Again, one day Christ will come and we will, we will be glorified along with him. And this world will be glorified, resurrected, and, and then, not so difficult, but now, difficult. And the temptation for all of us, if we are honest, is when things really get tough, when serving the Lord, when honoring the Lord becomes difficult, our thoughts tend to take us back to the way that things were when it wasn't so, so difficult, when everybody loved us and got along with us and agreed with us. That's not the life that God has called us to. Paul uses this same word, conformed, and again, Romans 12, 2, when he says, do not be conformed to this world. The word means to be pressed into the mold of. Whether you know it or not, the world in which we live is seeking to press us into its mold. The world in which we live wants us to think like the world thinks, wants us to act like the world acts. Paul says, don't give in to that. Don't be conformed to this world, but rather as obedient children, our lives are being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's in Romans 8, 29. A conformed life, a transformed mind, a conformed life, and then, and then a consecrated life. Look what he says here in verse 17. If you call on him as father, in other words, if you call God father, and I hope you do, the Bible says that if you're a Christian, you've been adopted into the family of God, you can call heavenly father, father. You can call him father. So if you call on him as father, know this, he judges impartially according to each one's deeds. So conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now there's a warning. This God that we now call father, this God that we have absolute freedom to cry out to, who we know will hear our cry and turn and meet our need, this is the God who will one day be our judge. He'll judge us. But it's important here that we realize we won't be judged for our sin, right? Our sins have been judged at the cross. Jesus Christ took our sin upon himself, separated us from our sin. Our sins have been judged. So what is this judgment all about? Well, it's about 
the way that we've lived our life. It's about our, our deeds, as Peter says here. There will be a judgment. So conduct yourselves with, with fear. Now again, I want to I stop for just a moment and talk about what that word fear means. It doesn't mean that we're to live our lives afraid of God. All right, we don't have to be afraid of our Heavenly Father. I grew up in a home where uh, discipline was handled very differently between my mother and my father. And just a, an example I've given many times in this church, I'll share it again today. My, my dad's birthday is July 4th, so in honor of him, I'll share this story. <laughs> when my brother and I were going to school, we shared a room, and my mother would come in in the mornings to wake us up. And typically, she would walk in, and she would sit on the bed and rub my back and gently say, James, I started to say Brother James. <laughs> She doesn't even call me that now. Anyway, it's time to wake up. It's time for school. She'd do the same thing for my brother, and then she'd walk out of the room. And you know what happened? Nothing. And she'd come back again, and sometimes a third time. Well, my dad had a very different way of waking us up in the morning. He would simply walk to the bedroom door, and he would say one word, boys. Boom, four feet would hit the ground. We had a holy fear of our fathers. A reverential fear. I wasn't afraid of my dad, but I had the utmost respect, reverence, awe. I mean, I knew when he said, boys, he meant business. That's the idea here. We're not to be afraid of God, but we're to live in reverential awe of God. He's, he's God. So if we call upon him as father, know this, that he judges impartially according to each one's deed. So we need to conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile. Our lives ought to bear a family resemblance. In other words, we ought to live our lives so that people see God in us. They may not recognize that God, but they ought to see him in us. And we should desire to live in a way that pleases our Heavenly Father. One day we will indeed stand at the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of our deeds. I'm just going to read some verses to you. Psalm 111, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I, I want to be wise. I don't know about you. It starts with the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1, 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. I want to know some things about the Lord and about life. It begins with the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 8, 13, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. You know, church, that's one of the big problems we have today. We don't hate evil. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Proverbs 10, 27, The fear of the Lord prolongs life. Now, all of us can get on board with that one, right? Proverbs 14, 27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, and one may turn away from the snares of death. Proverbs 19, 23, the fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever have it, has it rests satisfied. You want to find true satisfaction in life? It starts with the fear of the Lord, this reverential awe, this respect for our Heavenly Father. Peter has called us to hope. He has commanded us to be holy. And in both of those summons, he has called us to do what is absolutely impossible for us. So why should we rejoice in that? Well, again, because of the grace of God. If it were not for the grace of God, we'd be totally out of luck. But, but we have God's grace. And so Peter just takes a moment here at the end of this passage of Scripture to rejoice in who we are in Christ. To rejoice in the fact that we can set our hope 
fully upon the grace that will be brought to us at the return of Christ. We can live uh, lives of, of holiness. Why? He says in verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Church, how can we live with this hope? How can we live holy lives knowing that we were ransomed, redeemed by the precious blood of Christ? Psalm twenty-two, twenty-three says, you who fear the Lord, praise him. We should praise the Lord for this salvation. And then let me just say a couple of things. As, as Peter continues, what we find here is that this ransom, again, the, the, the word ransom there means to, to, to buy. It really, it means to purchase out of the slave market. That's what God has done for us. He's purchased our freedom with the life of his own son. It was a costly redemption. You know, we speak of salvation sometimes as if it's just this thing that God does. No. God secured our redemption not with, not with such things as silver and gold. The things that men put their trust in today, the, men, the things that men want to accumulate more than anything else, silver and gold, the things in this world that seem to have so much value, Peter says, ah, those things don't even compare in value to the blood of Jesus. Amen. And that was the price of your ransom, the price of your redemption, God's own son. And what that says to us today, church, is this. We are valuable. We are significant. God treasures us as we should treasure him. It was a costly redemption. And of course, it was a compassionate redemption. Why are we saved today? Because God set his love upon us. And when did he do that? Well, look what it says here about Jesus Christ. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Anytime we think about our salvation, whether we're thinking about the plan of salvation in the mind of God, whether we're thinking about the, the atonement that took place outside of Jerusalem uh, 2,000 years ago, whether we're talking about the day that you and I got saved, all of that was in God's mind before the foundation of the world, before time began. According to Jeremiah 31.3, God's love for you is an everlasting love. Psalm 103, 17, from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. There's that fear again. God has loved you from the beginning, and he will love you to the end. That's what those words mean. It's such a wonderful thing. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but made manifest in these last times for the sake of you. Jesus came into this world. God sent his son into the world to die for you, for your sake. You want to know what love and compassion looks like? You look at our, our Savior. And then finally, it's a complete redemption. Peter says that it's through him that we are believers in God. Are you a believer in God today? Are you believing? Are you trusting? Is your faith this very moment in God? I mean, the scripture says right here, and again, such a wonderful thing. You know, you're not potential believers in God. You're not becoming believers in God. If you've trusted Jesus Christ, received him as your Savior and Lord, you are a believer in God. According to the writer of Hebrews, God has saved you to the uttermost. Rejoice, church. 
cry, praise the Lord. So let me just ask you this as we close. Again, are your faith and hope in God? If they are, praise the Lord. Go out and serve him with all your heart. But if there's some uncertainty, if someone's not sure of that, the Bible says that if you will turn from your sin and repentance and receive Christ as Savior and Lord, you'll be saved. God will set you apart for himself. Pour out his grace throughout your life so that you can live holy unto him and praise him all the while.